And when I think of what it means to be sophisticated and cultured, for some unbeknownst reason, in my mind, I think of Shakespeare and ballet. And so I rush out in a renewed enthusiasm to buy tickets to take me and my wife Debbie to go and see either a Shakespeare production or the ballet, forgetting every experience I've ever had in the past. And so with enthusiasm, we arrive at the the theatre, we get our kind of, I was going to say popcorn, but that's not what you get at the ballet, that's the cinema. We get our gin and tonic and we have a nice bowl of olives or whatever else we have just to warm us up before the performance. Take our seats and I look around and find myself strangely out of sorts with the audience. Because I look around and they all look like they know what's about to happen. And as the performance starts, the same thing happens to me. And I listen to what's going on, or I watch, in the case of ballet, often what's going on. And I think to myself, I have absolutely no idea what on earth is actually going on. I see people around me being moved, tears rolling down their cheeks, and I'm told Shakespeare is in English. It's not any English I've ever come across before. I don't know about you. And ballet. Well, the first time I went to ballet, nobody told me there was actually no spoken word. And I'm watching these delightful people, I'm sure, dance across the stage, feeling completely at sea. Now, I think a lot of people feel a bit like me when they try and read this thing. I don't know if you've ever tried reading Leviticus recently, but maybe you have these good intentions where you kind of sit down and think, yeah, I'm going to do it this time. Really going to start being able to understand the Bible. And you start reading it and you get the same emotion. I have no idea what's going on here. Maybe you feel disqualified from engaging with God's love letter to his children. Well, see, that wrestle right there is the wrestle which has taken place for hundreds of years. 500 years ago, the Renaissance had given birth to an intellectual freedom which actually became the seedbed for newfound spiritual freedoms. The reformers, the likes of Luther, the likes of Tyndale and Fox, who literally would commit their lives to translate the Bible, wrestle it back from the feudal overlords of the day, from the ruling classes. The Bible was held in Latin, only interpreted by those who knew the language and who had been authenticated by the church to be able to interpret it to the masses. And so a father's love letter to his children lay out of the reach of normal people like you and I. And the reformers fought to translate into... Tyndale into English, Luther into German, and because of the printing press of the time in the mid-1500s by Gutenberg meant that these translated translations could be proliferated across Europe. Europe still, by the way, has become the center for 
translation of the Bible into every tongue. And they think within, certainly my lifetime, we'll get there. And so the printing press meant that we had it in Flemish. But of course, the Renaissance gave way to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment introduced a kind of scientific thought. And the scientific reasoning and deductive processes sought to take the mysteries of God and rationalize them all. And so we took the big story of God that had been in the hands of everyday people and started to say, we need to break it down. We need to break down the big story into books. We need chapters and we need verses. And of course, if you're going to understand it, you need to understand the original language. I don't know how many Greek and Hebrew scholars we have in the room, but if you believe you need to understand the original language, you may well have disqualified yourself from understanding it. And of course... It's not just about understanding the languages. We've got to understand the people who wrote it. And of course, there aren't just writers. There are also editors of the New Testament letters. And maybe there are books of the Bible that have multiple contributors writing to different audiences. And we break down the Bible bit by bit by bit till we get down to the smallest syllable written in a language which is not our own. And so my experience as a, not a pastor now, but I was a pastor of a fairly large church for about 15 years, my experience was that people used to say to me, Toby, we love coming to church on Sunday because we get fed. And I used to think to myself, at first that was a compliment, but I used to think to myself, that's awful. Because you have the Bible to feed yourself. So what is it that is in our minds that makes us think that you need to come to somebody else to get fed? And I think it's because we feel disqualified. Because what the rationalistic process has done is sought to make the Bible complex. And so we think understanding it's complex. We've made it complex, and the approach has been to water down the gospel. We've made it complicated and easy, rather than what it was intended to be, which is simple and hard. The gospel is simple, but it will cost you everything. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because I'm just going to introduce to you this morning... The two simple themes that run like the double helix of DNA through the Bible. Because I think as you begin to understand those two themes, you'll get a new insight into reading the Bible. We'll only actually look at one today. Couldn't quite get them both in, unless you can borrow me another hour or two. I'm guessing not. The Bible is about two things, which means that our lives are about two things. The Bible is firstly about a relationship. It's about who we are and whose we are. It's about identity, who you are. It's about a relationship, our being. The theological term, by the way, is covenant. So it's about a relationship. The second thing it's about is something called the kingdom. It's about our responsibility. 
The Bible's about a relationship. It's also about a responsibility. It's about our doing. Where covenant is about identity, who you are. Kingdom is about what we do. If covenant is the revelation that we have a father that loves us, kingdom is the revelation that God is a king. And we're not just called into a relationship, we're called into a partnership with God, transforming the world as emissaries on his behalf. Jesus said it himself in the prayer that he taught us. This is what you should say, my father's covenant language in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Then he says, pray this, pray that the kingdom of God would come and heaven's will would be expressed through me into the earth. Kingdom, covenant and kingdom. The revelation of the father and the revelation of the king. Both themes are like the warp and the weft of scripture that weave every page together. It's like the longitude and latitude of the Bible that helps us, anytime we read a story, locate where we are and what's really going on. Okay? Relationship, responsibility. Got it? Just nudge the person next to you and say, the Bible is about covenant and kingdom, which is about relationship and responsibility. Go on. And if you want to tell them how Man United lost yesterday as well, I'd be delighted that you would pass that on. I'm a Forest fan. Forest won. Yeah, there's one other person in the house. It's always a pleasure to meet the other person in the known world who supports the same team as me. Good. Okay, we're settling in. So we should probably start having a look at the actual Bible. We're going to have a focus on covenant today. Because I think as we understand who we are, we're positioned and established to be able to understand what it is that we're here to do. So let's start at the beginning. In the epic account, right on the very first pages of the Bible found in Genesis, the beginning, literally beginnings, we have this great picture of God surrounded by the stars, which in the cosmology of the day really was the picture of the angelic hosts. And God is saying, before these angelic hosts, saying, let us make humanity. Let us make humanity in our image. Cue sharp intake of breath from all of the created order. Really? You're going to make, yeah, good one, let's have that. Yeah, I've got one person who's playing along at the front anyway. Can we have a, a collective angelic intake of breath? Ah, oh, now, now we're doing it. Okay, good. He's going to make somebody in his image. God's image. 
a little higher than the angels. Is he actually serious? And so God makes humanity literally with the impression of God upon them, the imprint of God, the image. It's, the, it's as if the potter has been fashioning the pot and has placed his imprint, his impression into the pot. Humanity was made to always function within arm's reach of its creator so that the, the creator could put into the created the thing that had left the impression. God the Father creates humanity in his image to be in relationship with him. And interestingly, humanity were created and the first day that humanity had in the Genesis narrative was a day of rest. Because the top priority is not what you do. The top priority is who you are. It's relationship. God made us first to relate, to rest in relationship, devoid of having to bring anything to the table. The freedom of relationship is based on bringing nothing. So God made us and we rested and we worked from rest. So God made us, we rested, we built relationship with him and he created a place where humanity walked with God in the cool of the day, speaking to him face to face. Naked but secure. Secure in their non-productivity. God created this garden. They knew freedom, abundance, plenty. They knew the joy of relationship. And interestingly, if we want to give a nod to the kingdom theme, God didn't just make them and say, have a relationship with me. He said he wanted them to rule over the earth and subdue it. He wanted to establish a relationship which became the context of his kingdom being expressed on the earth through partners, through you and I. And unfortunately, we know how some of the story begins to pan out. God had created a safe place with boundaries. And one of the boundaries was don't eat from the tree. Because there can be no relationship without choice. Love does not exist without choice. And so he creates a condition of covenant, a condition of relationship, which is based on free will and choice, which they have. And we know the story. We know that in a moment, they begin to stop trusting the intent of the father. They turn their back and in doing so are torn away from the relationship which would bring them freedom. And that story takes place in the first few chapters of Genesis. 
And we read an interesting fact that God, as they realized their nakedness, as they realized their vulnerability, as they realized they were exposed, God created a new covering for them. Yeah, he said he created a new skin for them to be covered. Because what was meant to be covered by him now was being covered by something else. Where we were supposed to receive our identity from a loving father, we were now being covered, receiving identification with something else. And for millennia since, people have been covering themselves with all sorts of things. Because our culture and every culture that's existed seeks to give you an identity. Because identity does not come from within. comes from without. It is given to you. You become identified with people and with stuff. So, that's the start of the Bible. God's intent for relationship and responsibility is pictured, however we understand those first chapters, as allegory or as literal. They paint a picture of these two themes. Let's have a bit of a think about covenant. Because we don't live in a culture which understands covenant. And yet, the Bible is built on the bedrock of covenant. It's like, it's the hidden subtext. And from time to time, we see little bits of that bedrock emerging above the surface. Covenant is where two different parties come together to become one. The only remaining vestige that we have of covenant is marriage. Two people come together and they become one. There is a dying to an old identity, an old way of living, where as you become one new identity together. And there's all of the hallmarks. There's often name changes. There's an exchange, I've not got mine on this morning, um, exchange of rings to symbolize an external expression, promises made, always going to be faithful in sickness and in health. Everything I've got is yours. It's two parties coming together to be one. Now that was the culture upon which the Bible was written. And it wasn't just covenant between man and wife. Covenants were made between multiple different kinds of people. And literally, whenever you read um, of the idea of covenant, it's always cut. A covenant is always cut. And I'll tell you why that is in just a minute. In the ancient Near East culture, where there was no ruling authorities, there was no governance, there was no police... How did you find a sense of security? It was in the people that you were in covenant with. And we still see in some of the African tribes today, they scar their face, don't they? And the point being this, if I came down to the, the water hole and I found somebody who was drinking, I came down with a few of my friends, 
down to the billabong tree to get some water, I would look at that person and I would look for who they were in covenant with. Because I'm asking myself, are they a soft target or not? Because I'm asking myself who they're in covenant with because if I take them on, I take everybody on that they are in covenant with. Because when you're in covenant, you're one. Tribes made covenants. It's, it was the way of creating protection, security, identity in a world which was often quite dangerous. Covenants required, always required death of some description, sort of symbolically. So you'd often find around covenant-making ceremonies, animals were killed. And the two parties often would, would change places. It's like they'd be stood at either end of where a sacrifice has been made and they'd walk through the blood to symbolize, I am dying, there's a death of my old self, and I am now standing where the other person stood as a sign and a symbol that I am now identified with them. So if I was Fred, and there was a guy over there called Joe, and we swap places, I would become Fred Joe. And let's say Joe was a sheep farmer and I was a cow farmer. I would move from being Fred the cow farmer to Fred Joe the cow and sheep farmer. Because everything that person had now belonged to me. I always made decisions with that other person. I couldn't make decisions by myself anymore because I'm in covenant. So, hold that thought. And let's turn, if you want to, you can have a look. I'm just going to tell you the story rather than read all of the different aspects of it. But if covenant and kingdom are the twin tracks through the Bible, then we would expect to see it all over the place. Well, let's move on to one of the colossal characters of the Old Testament, Abram. Actually, Abram and Joseph are two great pictures in the Old Testament of covenant and kingdom people. Abram we meet in chapter 12. This is about-ish 2000 BC. And God makes him a promise. And the promise is, I'll bless you and I'll make you into a great nation. Now at that time, Abram had no children. And he says, I want you to leave where you are. Covenant always starts actually with a promise. I'm going to give you this and I want you to leave and follow me, God says. And so Abram almost certainly took part of a significant Western migration that took place. From Haran, he took he, on the coattails of God through, through, towards Egypt with his household. And we pick up the story in Genesis 15, where Abram is a bit frustrated. Abram still has no kids, and God has told him he'll be a great nation. How's that going to happen? So listen to, I'll read you a few verses here. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? 
Abraham had done what most of us do when we're waiting for the promise, which is try and make it happen ourselves. Got on and tried to create his own offspring rather than waiting on the promise of the covenant partner. Um, We can perhaps deal with that another time. God says to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son in your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside. It's an amazing picture. I don't know if you've ever seen the stars in the desert at night. But God took him outside and said, look at this. And remember, in the cosmology of the day, the stars would have represented to the people the angelic host. God is saying, this is my household. Look at my family. Look how numerous it is. And, and God says to Abraham, your family will be as numerous as this. And the Bible says that God, that, sorry, Abraham trusted God. He believed him. He said, yeah, I think that's right. He says it, he credited it to Abraham as right relationship, righteousness. God said, as you have turned your heart towards me in faith, you're within reach for the imprint to receive the hand of its maker again. As you turn your heart in faith towards me, our relationship is restored. Then we go on some really fascinating uh, passages, which um, I just want us to look at briefly. Because if you don't know covenant and kingdom, covenant particularly, these will seem very, very strange. Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know, this is verse 8, that I shall gain possession of it? How shall I know God? It's all very well you saying these things, but how will I know? And do you know God's response? God says this, So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Arrange the pieces in halves opposite to each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. I've no idea why, by the way. Maybe they're just a bit too fiddly. Um, The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. This is covenant language. Abraham says, how will I know? And God says, fetch me the sacrifice. Fetch me the animals and butcher them from tail to the nose. And lay the pieces facing open, creating a corridor of blood between the pieces. This is covenant. And then it says, we don't know if Abraham, I mean, I guarantee you Abraham celebrated at this moment, that the God, creator of the universe, would be instigating a covenant with Abraham is quite remarkable. What we do know, and we pick this up a few verses later, that a smoking brazier appeared at one end of the pieces, and passed through the pieces. The burning fire representing God passed through the pieces. And the Bible doesn't say this, but I promise you this is what happened. Abraham rushed through the pieces to the other end, because God was making a covenant with him. Now, There are lots of things that happen over the next few verses which represent covenant. Abraham doesn't stay Abraham for long, does he? 
He becomes Abraham. Abraham, by the way, means exalted father. Abraham means the father of many nations. One of the hays in Yahweh was inserted into Abraham's name. Abraham literally took on the identity of God. He's not, Abraham's not the father of many nations. Who's the father of many nations? It's God. But because we're in covenant, Abraham now becomes Abraham, takes on God's identity onto himself. Slightly more uncomfortable piece that we have the, the act of covenant making, but it needs ratifying. There's always a scar in covenant. And two chapters later, for the gents of the people of God, life was about to get slightly less comfortable. Because the scar of the covenant was introduced. The scar of the covenant was the scar of circumcision. It was a scarring which would always remind of the covenant that they had. A couple of chapters later, the Bible skips over vast amounts of time. And then it slows right down as we get to Genesis 22. Because having established a covenant with Abraham, having given him a promise, having cut a covenant, having said to him, you now carry my name, you are now my ambassador on the earth, the resources I have now belong to you. The covenant, as it always is, is tested. And so we have the story in Genesis 22, where Abraham, Abraham is journeying with Isaac to the mountain of Moriah. And Abraham is carrying a burning blazier. And Isaac is carrying the wood upon which he would be sacrificed. Now, these mountains were where Melchizedek, a friend of Abraham's, ministered. It was also the place where many years later, the son of the other covenant-making partner would carry his wooden cross so that he could fulfill his part of the covenant. And we know the story that Abraham takes Isaac, binds him to the wood, And just as he's about to slay his son, God says, stop, I have provided a sacrifice for this covenant. The sacrifice is my son, not yours. Because wherever God tests you in your covenant, he's always prepared to go there himself. So here's the thing. God is a covenant-making God. And the covenant that was established, not in the corridor of blood of animals, the eternal covenant was established in the corridor of blood of the Son of God himself, the initiating covenant partner.
And as that happened, literally what is going on is Jesus is fully identifying himself with you, which is what happens in covenant. He says, I will stand fully in your place of barrenness, of separation, and of sin. I will identify fully with that. And he was crushed for our iniquities, literally separated from the Father, the place which was ours. And he opened a doorway at the cross for us to walk through that corridor of blood and stand fully in the place of his identity. Why are we all called the Son of God? Because Jesus is a son. We take his identity. We've taken his place. Paul would later write that we are now hidden inside Christ. One with him. At one month was established atonement. And it is now just as if Ad never sinned. Jesus creates the doorway for us to fully, as a gift, enter into his identity. And the Bible says this. This means that God, when he looks towards you, does not love you any less than he loves Christ. As the Father has loved Jesus, so he loves you. The writer to the Hebrews says, we can now boldly and confidently come before his throne of grace. Why? Because it's not us that is coming. We are hidden fully in his identity. And Jesus comes with a lot of confidence. You can come with the same confidence. Now, the enemy's strategy with your life is to get you to behave like this. To believe somehow that your identity is not a free gift, but it's something that needs to be earned, achieved, and taken hold of. Actually, your identity as a son is more about rest and letting go than it is about working and earning. I'm the The scar of circumcision, Paul says, that there's a circumcision of the heart. Also says that your name is written on his hands. That's his scar of circumcision. Not scar of circumcision, scar of covenant. The risen Christ has scars, still does. Because they are his scars of covenant. The revelation of covenant is this that there is a loving father that has an identity to freely give to you. It's a gift. He would say over your life that he is pleased, well pleased with you. Well pleased. Not because of what you've done or not done. 
but because of what Jesus has done and because of covenant. And the problem, people, is there are so many Christians working hard to get into a room that they're already in. You can legitimately wake up every morning and say, I am the favorite one of God. Because the son is the favorite one of the father. His heart's always turned towards you. Always. Because it's always turned towards the son. The resources of heaven. Everything that belongs to Christ because of covenant, now belongs to you. Now. Why does Jesus say greater works than these you will do? It's because of covenant. We are one with him. We just don't believe it. So I could go on. I'm aware of the time. There are two questions I just want you to reflect on over the coming days. The first question is this. Where are you choosing to get your identity from? From who and from where? Because I can almost guarantee you that the greatest sources of anxiety in life stimulate from the places where you're seeking to cover yourself. You're still living over here even though we've been invited to live over there. Where are you getting your sense of identity from? Because the enemy would tell you this, the more success that I can gather to myself, the more that builds an identity for me and the more that I will be acceptable to the Father and to others. And folks, if you live that life, It'll be very tiring and a dead end. The flow of God's grace is that you would first look to the Father who says to you, I am pleased every day. Allowing that to create the security of our identity which enables us to be a success. So the first question I'd love you to think about is, where is it that currently you're looking to for your covering, your identity? And the second question is, is this, where are you holding back? I promise you, God is never holding back. Now this question, it's really important we understand this, this question does not say this, Where am I not surrendering and sacrificing so that God likes me? That's called legalism. And it puts you in the place of God. The question is this. Where am I I holding back? Having seen that God is a father. Having heard his pleasure over my life. 
having come to know and to trust that he is good, what am I still trying to control and hold on to? What of my life have I not surrendered to him? What of my life have I not journeyed through the cross myself and arrived open-handed before my maker? Where do you need to let go of control? And I'll tell you one quick story, and then we'll finish. About 15 years ago, in my 18-year marriage, me and my wife decided that about time to start trying for kids. And so we thought that'd be a pretty cool idea, not knowing what on earth we were getting ourselves in for. But for whatever reason, we were unable Month after month, this cycle of terrible hope deferred. Some of the most painful years that me and Debs have been through together. And that carried on month after month. Felt like an age. You know, we fasted and we prayed and we contended before the Lord. We did everything that we thought we could do. Which is natural And quite probably the right thing to do. But we hit a point where God challenged us both and said to us, will you still trust me even if you never have kids? See, we were stood over here trying to claim our right. We wanted it our way. And we looked at a loving father who was calling us to lay down our life. And on our knees, quite literally, we said before the Lord, do you know, you're good. If we never have kids, we will still trust you. We can still be a mum and a dad. We'll go and look to adopt. We embraced the cross and entered into the freedom of living in his covenant. We let go of our rights because we no longer live. Now, as it happens, and I must stress, I do not believe it's, it's not a slot machine, right? God's not a slot machine. It's what he said to us. Within a month, we were pregnant. And our second two kids were conceived the very first month. We even looked at each other. (laughs) So we found ways to try and prevent any further children emerging. Now I say that because some of us need to let go. We need to stop holding things against God. So I think that's it. Should we pray? <clears throat> Gino, I'd love it if we could stand. Father, we love you.
and we love to be loved by you. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would be revealed as the faithful, covenant-making God. Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts to look at you afresh, to hear the words of a loving and faithful Father. And as we hear you and see you, help us to let go so that we might follow you with abandon.